Okay, welcome to the Faculty Podcast. This is a a slightly different format than we normally do. We have an open house today here at RTS Washington. And so we're recording the podcast here before a a live studio audience, as it were. Um, So we're glad to have both the class, uh, the Covenant Theology class and the hermeneutics class here joining us for this conversation. Another special aspect of this recording is that we've got Dr. Ligon Duncan here, Chancellor at Reformed Theological Seminary, who all of you all know. And we're going to be talking here just for a, a short a short conversation about covenant theology. Uh, we want to ask a, a few questions about what covenant theology is, why is it important to the Reformed tradition, why is it important to us in ministry who are participating in the ministry of word and sacrament? Why, why do we need to know what covenant theology is? But before I jump into that, Dr. Duncan, first of all, let me just ask you, you, you've just gotten back from the PCA General Assembly. I know you've had a good bit of travel this summer. What's going on in your world and uh, how can we be praying for you? Well, thank you, Scott. It's great to be with you. And uh, I've been doing exactly what you've been doing, because you've just gotten back from the EPC General Assembly. And this is General Assembly Month for RTS. Because RTS serves students from almost all of of the main Presbyterian and Reformed denominations in North America, we end up going to a lot of General Assemblies and Synods. And a lot of those happen in June. Not all of them, Mm-hmm. But a lot of them happen in June. And so we've had uh, RTS representatives at the OPC General Assembly, the ARP uh, Synod, the PCA General Assembly, the EPC General Assembly, and so on. And I've been able to be at a number of those events and uh, representing RTS, uh, doing alumni events, uh, just a, a great opportunity to connect with our alumni tell them what's going on at RTS, encourage them in their ministry, give them some resources. We love giving away RTS professors' books uh, to our alumni, and we've done that at almost every uh, every place that I've been, certainly, this month. So June is a busy month, but it's a a fun time because we do get to go be with our alumni. And many of these folks I've taught over the course of many years. I've actually, this course that I'm teaching here at RTS Washington this week is beginning the 33rd year of my teaching for uh, RTS. Wow. And uh, so it's a it's a real joy to get to connect to people that you taught many years ago, and then some pretty recently, and see what they're doing, see how they're serving in their denominations, see how they're serving in their local church. So that's what, that's what June is like, for I think, for all of us. You and I usually meet one another at the EPC General Assembly, but this year the EPC and the PCA were right, right on, top on top of one another, yeah. and we had to divide and conquer. So I just had to satisfy myself with seeing pictures of you and Don Fortson and others uh, regaling our friends from the EPC at the RTS dinner. So um, that, that's what I've been doing this month. It's a it's a good time for RTS. I, I know that some of your listeners will know that this has been a challenging season for many theological seminaries. In fact, um, Kristen Sanders wrote an article for Christianity Today just a few weeks ago, and and she she opens with a sentence, there is no good news coming out of theological seminaries Mm. today. And by God's grace, I can say, uh, actually, there is good news at RTS, whereas 
Many of our friends and sister institutions are experiencing significant turbulence and decline. You know, we've all watched the the news about Gordon Conwell Seminary selling their campus and yeah. leasing in Boston. The news about the layoffs at Trinity Seminary, the the attempt to sell the campus at Fuller Seminary and move to Pomona that didn't work out, and now they're doing a different plan. There's it is a hard time for most people in theological education, but God has really blessed RTS. And part of my job, Scott, is just trying to keep ahead. You guys are doing a lot of stuff, and I have to kind of get out there and get ahead of you and do the best I can to support all the work that all of our campuses are doing. So by God's grace, while most seminaries are in numerical decline, RTS is growing and we're in very sound financial condition, even in these crazy times where we're hovering on the edge of a recession and things of that nature, God has been very good to provide for us. So we don't take that for granted. That's yeah. the Lord's kindness to us. And, um, and, we, and we pray that he continues to provide for us so that we can do what we do well yeah. and do it for more people in the days ahead. Yeah, you said at a board meeting, and I've, I've, I've repeated this over and over again, over the last couple of weeks at these at GA events, you know, we're doing well. We say that very humbly because we're watching this, we're watching everything going around us. And yet, I mean, right. to put, put some meat on those bones, we just had our largest enrollment at RTS that we've ever had ever. just yeah. past year. So praise God. Yeah. We're kind of saying we're very prayerfully considering, okay, what does this mean for the future and how we move forward? That's exactly right. Um, so that's our relationship with churches are key to that. And this, this symbiotic relationship that we have of serving the church, particularly ministers, ordained ministers who are going out in the ministry cross denominational lines. I also get that question a lot is like, well, I thought RTS was a, Presbyterian or, or just a PCA right. seminary. I'm like, no, we're non-denominational and we're right. serving churches across denominational lines. And that's actually kind of the center of the racket for us in terms it of what, what we're trying to do. And as I, even as I look around this room, I see folks from all different denominations in heading towards pastoral well, ministry. In our original mission statement, it explicitly says that we aim to serve all branches of evangelical Christianity especially the Presbyterian and Reform branch. And that that's actually true in the student body of RTS overall. About 48% of our students come from some kind of Presbyterian and Reform background, but the next biggest chunk is non-denominational and Baptist, and then Anglican, and then about 38 other things. Yeah. So the, the, <laughs> the, the, R, the RTS family reaches very broadly and widely into the Bible-believing Christian world, and we like it that way. Yeah. We, we are confessionally Reformed. We're not apologetic about that. Reformed is in our name, uh, and that's where we're going to be coming from. But our attitude to non-Reformed evangelicals and to Reformed evangelicals of every spice and variety is how how may we serve you? We, yeah. we want to help you prepare for a lifetime of faithful ministry. We're going to do that from a confessional reform framework. We think that's good for you, and we think it's good for the evangelical world. That's awesome. Let, let me pivot then to the subject at hand, because we're talking about our confessional a reformed confessional foundation that would that that's what we're serving out of and that's what we're offering to the church right um a key part of that is this idea of covenant theology and uh, for, for our listeners i think everyone in this room obviously y'all who are in the covenant theology class you now know more about covenant theology than you ever knew in in your lifetime before <laughs> um but for everybody else who's coming in here, what what is Reformed Covenant theology and what is its place in the Reformed Confession? Well, there's a real sense in which Reformed theology is covenant theology. 
You know, there, there are different ways that you can define what Reformed theology is, but one way to do it is to say Reformed theology is a school of historic Orthodox Christianity mm-hmm. in which the Bible's teaching about the sovereignty of God, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the sovereignty of God in salvation, uh, God's teaching about the importance of the church, and covenant theology are all emphasized. And covenant theology is is actually trying to help you read the Bible better. Uh, the, the, the Bible is a covenant book, and if you don't understand that, you won't be able to read right. the Bible as well as you could. I was talking with Tommy Keene, our dean here at RTSDC, who's a New Testament professor and is actually teaching a hermeneutics course right now. Yep. Uh, and, and, and I said, one thing I like to say about covenant theology is it is a hermeneutic. Yeah. It's, it's a way of reading the Bible. And we would say it's a way of reading the Bible that's drawn out of the way the Bible reads itself. Mm-hmm. The, the Bible itself uses the covenants to structure redemptive history and to teach us important things about how God deals with his people. Um, the, the, the ancient church used two words often to describe the categories the main categories about which the scriptures teach, theologia Mm -hmm. and oikonomia. And those two words mean what the Bible teaches about God, theology proper, we would say today, and then what the Bible teaches about how God communes and relates to Mm -hmm. the world and to his people. And that's the economy. And covenant theology says you can't understand how God deals with us and you can't understand how to commune with God unless you understand what the Bible teaches about the covenants. The, the, the word covenant in the Old Testament is used about 300 times. It's used over 30 times in the New Testament. And almost every time it's used, it's an important part of the narrative or the passage in which it is being deployed. You know, it's, not, it's not a transitional word or a conjunction or a definite article. It's usually a pretty important noun in whatever passage it's used. And so it's very frequently used, and it plays a very key role in the New Testament's interpretation of the Old Testament and in the New Testament's understanding of how there's one plan of redemption that God has been pursuing from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of the Bible. So I love, I love to teach covenant theology. Uh, I've, been, I've been teaching covenant theology at RTS for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. I've taught it maybe 50 times. And more than any other course, I, I hear students say back to me after they've taken covenant theology, it kind of put the Bible together for me yeah. and helped me see how things fit. And then consequently, that lets you read the Bible better down the line. Yeah, I've had that same experience. I had the opportunity to teach in Mediterranean Basin, you know, North Africa and the Middle East, oftentimes to pastors who are coming out of kind of more of a dispensationalist background because of the missionaries who were there by God's grace and, and led a lot of them to Christ. And yet, as I'm going through just kind of a general theology of Scripture, which is a covenant theology, I, I always notice it's right around Abraham. You know, you, you get to Abraham, and they've 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 learned about creation, they've learned about the fall, they've seen the the proto-evangelium, they've seen Noah. You get to Abraham, and suddenly it's like the light turns on, and right. the whole thing just it's like it just sucks together, and, yeah. and from there on out. 
everything just kind of flows yeah. so freely. And you can see how this is a Bible. This is a, a the text is a text that makes sense. It's telling this right. one story, this one plan of salvation. So some people have argued, well, this is really kind of a Reformation idea. You see it yeah. only in Calvin. You see it maybe kind of develop later in the continent, yeah. um, in, in continental reform theology. But you've done some work on, as you just mentioned, you know, we're yeah. talking about the economy and theology proper uh, on the early church kind of interacting with some of the themes of covenant. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Well, let me tell you how I got into it, and then I'll say just a few things about it. I, I was doing a master's thesis that got me into the literature about the relationship between the first generation reformers in the 16th century and the theology of the 17th century reformers. It is sometimes called Reformation and Post-Reformation. Sometimes it's called the Magisterial Reformers and the Protestant Scholastics. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, in an oppositional way, Calvin and the Calvinists. Uh, <laughs> and so I got into all of that literature, and I, I, I realized a couple of things. One is, and, and I, I actually, because I had a good professor before I ever read Richard Muller, who is an expert in this area, yeah. my professor had already started me down the line of seeing things like Richard Muller would eventually explain yeah. in his PhD dissertation at Duke University that became the book Christ and the Decree. And really, Muller has, has devoted his whole career to expanding and applying and elaborating the thesis of his dissertation that there is a substantial continuity from Calvin to the post-Reformation era mm -hmm. in Reformed theology, rather than an opposition between Calvin and the post-Reformation scholastic theologians. And um, so because I was doing a thesis that made me read in that area, I noted that the first-generation reformers, not just Calvin, but Zwingli and Bullinger uh, and, and many others, were utilizing the covenant idea as a significant uh, thematic uh, component of their biblical theology, of their, of their telling of redemptive history, but also for structuring their systematic theology, especially in relation to things like right. the doctrine of the atonement or the doctrine of the sacraments and things like that. And I began to wonder, hey, I wonder if there are precursors. I wonder if, you know, if, if Calvin is quoting John Chrysostom and Augustine and Bernard on things like atonement and other areas of theology, are the reformers quoting the fathers on covenant? Or is this just something de novo? Well, mm -hmm. people had already, when I was studying, this was a long time ago, 1980s, people had already started noting how the reformers were citing the early church fathers, and not just Augustine, but Irenaeus, Tertullian, Lactantius, Ambrose, Hillary, Clement, huh. Origen, etc., on covenant matters. And so I, I, I began to wonder, okay, I know the Reformers are citing them, but how significant was the covenant idea in earliest Christianity? Mm -hmm. And so when I was applying to the University of Edinburgh to do my doctoral work, the University of Edinburgh, and most British universities do this, they make you make an initial thesis proposal. Now, it may not end up being the thesis that you do, right. but they want you to know, they, they want to know that you've at least done some hard thinking about what you would like to study before you're admitted into a supervised postgraduate program. And so 
in consultation with, with a man who had mentored me, he's gone home to be with the Lord now, David Calhoun, a wonderful American uh, Presbyterian church historian, had studied at Princeton under Ed Dowie, had written on the history of Princeton and missions, but was also an, a really good expert in the theology of Heinrich Bullinger, and Bullinger was big time in the development of covenant, covenant thought. Theology, yeah. um, he gave me some guidance, and I, I proposed that I would work on the covenant idea in pre-Nicene theology. And my supervisor at Edinburgh, David Wright, who was a world-renowned, not only patristic, but also Reformation scholar, David said to me, um, is there enough there, Ligon? Is there really enough there to do this? And I said, well, it's Professor Wright— It's always a good question I, when you're starting your dissertation. And I'm thankful yeah. he asked that question. That's a really yeah. good question to ask a prospective PhD student because the worst possible thing in the world would be to get two years into a project and then you decide there's not enough here yeah, for I've me. chapter one and chapter right. two. <laughs> right. There's nowhere to go here. Yeah. So I said, I don't know, but I do know this. I, I've run across this article by a man named Everett Ferguson— and it's called A Covenant Idea in the Second Century. And he surveys from Justin Martyr uh, into the, the, the early third century the usages of the covenant idea and the oh, thought of some theologians. Well, David immediately said, oh, Everett, if Everett says it's there, it's there. <laughs> and and uh, what I didn't realize was that Everett Ferguson was a very famous American, what used to be called patristics. Now it usually is called early Christian studies scholar. And Everett was widely respected. And David, when he, when he heard that Everett had written an article on the topic, he knew that it wasn't just a phantasm in my mind. It right. really existed. And so he said, yes, you can do that. And so I, I surveyed eight theologians in four different geographical regions of the early church prior to the Council of Nicaea in 325. And I asked the question, you know, one, is the covenant idea a significant category in their thought? Mm -hmm. And two, how is it deployed? And I, I, I realized that, that covenant thought was very significant in the, in the writing and thinking of the earliest Christian theologians, and that it especially worked in three areas. Uh, number one, it worked in their interaction with their Jewish opponents in polemics. Mm -hmm. uh, they would utilize the covenant idea to, to argue that Christians were the proper recipients of the Abrahamic promises. Number two, they would use it in the Gnostic controversy, and to prove that the Old Testament was the Word of God, was the product of the same God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that the the uh, the, the message of the Old Testament and and the New Testament was coherent, right. and um, and and then thirdly, they used it for catechesis. So, uh, for instance, there's a there's a little book that was written by Irenaeus in the late second century. It's variously translated in English. Sometimes it'll be called the demonstration of the apostolic preaching. Sometimes it'll be translated the proof of the apostolic teaching. But it's it's basically a book that he wrote for candidates for baptism, hmm. catechumens, to teach them biblical theology. And we lost it for about 1,700 years. And then it was discovered in Syriac at the beginning of the 20th century. And trans it's why if you have a that big old massive volume of the, of the Church Fathers that was edited in Edinburgh and in Philadelphia last century called the Ancient Nicene Christian Library, mm -hmm. it's not in there 
because it wasn't found until that had been completely translated and published in the 1880s, 1890s. It was found in the early 1900s in Syria. In the Eastern Church. And, and translated now. And so if you have the Catholic Fathers of the Church series or some of those things, you'll find it in English. And it, it's, it's also been translated in standalone editions. But it basically follows the outline of Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenants. <laughs> he goes from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Christ, giving the sweep of biblical theology and redemptive history using the covenants. And uh, of course, he does this also in Against Heresies, uh, where he's uh, he's dealing with a variety of Gnostic errors. And he's he's doing the things that I was saying. He's, he's arguing for the continuity of redemptive history. So... Um, I, I realized, wow, the, the the fathers actually have a lot to say about this. No wonder the reformers quoted them on this. The reformers weren't just sort of lifting them out of context and wrenching them into the you know use that they wanted to sort of push them into. They were actually learning from the fathers and realizing, boy, covenant's pretty important for understanding the Bible. That's fascinating. When when do you see then in reform thought this idea, particularly like what people used to call federal theology? Yeah. You know, where you see this development of ideas like covenant of works, like these more yeah. grand sweeping umbrella yeah. terms, covenant of grace, covenant of Well redemption. said. Um, no question that the development of what we now call covenant uh, theology is very much the product of the, the great reformers of the 16th century. And by the, by the time you get towards the end of the 16th century, you're already getting the standard formulations of Reformed theology, uh, Reformed covenant theology today through the writers of people like um, Olavianus mm -hmm. and Ursinus and others who are, you know, very important for the Heidelberg Catechism mm -hmm. and things of this nature. And, and then by the, by the turn of the 17th century, by the early 1600s, you're getting, it's becoming more common to use language like covenant of works and covenant of grace. By the time you get to the 1640s and the formulation of the Westminster Confession, they will write a chapter yeah. uh, in the confession, one of the first confessions to actually treat specifically the topic of the confession in a discrete chapter, and they'll formulate covenant of works and covenant of grace. And so it's a 16th and 17th century formulation that gives us both sort of the systematic side of covenant theology and the biblical theology side of it and puts it together. You can find earlier theologians deploying the, the same thing that Calvin and Bullinger and others will do in the 17th century from the standpoint of biblical theology. Mm -hmm. But the combination of systematic and biblical theology yeah. that sort of comes so to fruition in the 17th yeah. century, that's a distinctive reform contribution. The Lutherans really ne never developed in this area because Luther, and, and today, if you pick up a good Orthodox Lutheran systematic theology, there will not be a, a section on the covenants. Hmm. It'll be on law and gospel. And part of that is because Luther's encounter with covenant thought came via late medieval nominalism, Gabriel Beale, right. Occam, etc. And they deployed covenant thought in a very semi-Pelagian way. Mm -hmm. And Luther, thank God, was allergic to semi-Pelagianism. Yep, yep. But unfortunately, he associated covenant thought with that. That was, a mis that was a misdeployment of covenant thought that was inconsistent with the rest of the Catholic tradition. But late medieval nominalism really gave 
Luther the heebie-jeebies about covenant thought, you know? Yeah, right. And so it's the reformers that pick that up. That becomes one of the big distinctives between a reformed Protestant take and a Lutheran Protestant take on That's things. Great. Okay. So then as we're talking about, we're talking about pre-Nicene developments, the, the kind of unique reformed developments that we see post-Reformation Protestant church. What, how are we to make here at RCS? We have a, we have, large number of Presbyterian students, large number of Baptist students, Anglican students. As we're looking now at the different flavors of what's passing as covenant theology, how should we think about a reformed covenant theology versus say some kind of you know progressive dispensationalism yeah. or some of the new flavors that we've seen described of the last few years? Boy, I mean, there are a lot of good answers to that question, yeah. Scott. Let me try and do maybe a, a few helpful yeah, give me, things. Give me about 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one, one thing for people to know is just that Reformed Covenant theology wasn't invented to respond to dispensationalism. Right. You know, it's not a right. modern rejoinder to dispensationalism. It actually predates dispensationalism by about 300 years in its formula. In fact, the word dispensationalism does not exist right. until the 20th century. Interesting. So um, it's, it's important for people to realize that because dispensationalism was so good at popularizing that it found its way into theological traditions where dispensationalism is not its native soil. So True, today like study you will Bible, find yeah. Baptists, Congregationalists, Anglicans, Presbyterians, and others that have been influenced by dispensationalism. That is not the native biblical theology of Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Congregationalists, and others. That's just not what any of that tradition believed. If you, if you read Charles Spurgeon, great English Baptist preacher in London in the, at the, in the second half of the 19th century. His biblical theology is Puritan covenant theology. Zero dispensationalism. He's a covenant theologian because he's read the Puritans and he's got his covenant theology from them. And um, so, but dispensationalism was very good at popularizing and it found its way into various traditions. So the one thing I would want to say is covenant theology wasn't invented to respond to that. It actually predates that uh, by a long time. Um, another thing I would say is covenant theology has been the beneficiary of a lot of advancement in terms of the things that we have learned, especially in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, I, covenant theology sort of fell into disuse between about the 1850s and the 1950s. And I think there are a lot of factors, the rise of liberal theology, yep. um, the, the rise of dispensational, popular dispensationalism, et cetera. But in the middle of the 20th century, we make all of these archeological and literary studies that open a world to us about what's going on in the ancient Near East and how covenants work in that context, whether it, they're interesting pre, in yeah. light of what you just said from about pre-Nicene thought, there's also kind of a return to again, Adam, Noah, Abraham, which I thought was interesting. It's kind of like we've come full circle now and return back to the That's specific right. covenants. And so yeah. you have, you know, you have scholars like G.E. Mendenhall that go out and, and they unearth and uh, all of these covenant resources for us that have been lost to us for years. So scholars like Meredith Klein read Mendenhall and realize, wow, there are some ramifications for how we understand even the structure of the book of Deuteronomy. This is actually written in a covenant treaty yeah. form and, uh, and there, and there are ramifications of that for the canon of scripture and there are, ramif you know, there are ramifications for this, for how you understand sacraments by oath consigned and all of this. So you have this, 
this explosion of covenant knowledge in the middle of the century. And by the way, the Roman Catholic scholars are super involved in this. You'll know this, D.J. McCarthy and others uh, in the Catholic tradition, they're gobbling this stuff up. And then Old Testament scholars, not from a conservative Reformed tradition, but like Walter Eichrott, will even structure his Old Testament yep. theology around covenant. the covenant idea. So there's this explosion of the realization of the importance of covenant theology in a variety of ecclesiastical and theological traditions. And so our tradition, that we, where we've always cared about covenant theology, try to pay close attention to that and deploy that learning in a way that was edifying and helpful in, in the way we explain covenant theology today. So we're actually living right now in a time of flourishing of mm -hmm. covenant theology. I've lost count of how many good popular introductions to covenant theology have been written in the last 20 years. That was not the case in 1970. Uh, Derek Kidner, when, when Palmer Robertson's um, uh, Christ of the Covenants was published in the 70s. Derek Kidner said, finally, you know, an understandable, readable introduction to, to covenant theology. Well, I mean, you would never say that today. Yeah. Uh, there's been so much good work done. And the RTS has produced a volume on covenant. That You wrote the, the chapter on the Abrahamic covenant That's in right. that volume. And so you'll see the fruits of our own professors at RTS harvesting all this material that has been developed not only over the last 400 years, but over the last 75 years, uh, things that we have learned. And so uh, there, there's some super helpful things for Bible teaching that we have learned from the 20th century discover, discoveries related to covenant theology. Yeah, I've, I've even noticed, I mean, even in kind of my broader field, uh, you know, kind of Semitic Old Testament studies, we have a large number of Jewish, Catholic, Protestant scholars. <clears throat> the, regardless of what people believe about how scripture was composed or authorship and that kind of thing, there's general agreement that, yeah, this this thing that we're calling covenant theology, yeah. that's basically how the Bible works. Yeah. If, if you have to say how the Bible works, that's how it that's Absolutely. How it works. So um, it's been fascinating to watch that development even over the last 20 years, as you said, the, the growth has been incredible. So let's do this. Let's open up the floor now. It, it, it's been the two of us talking. As you see, we have a third mic. So we want to bring in the third uh, unnamed uh, uh, participant in this conversation, which is our audience. So let's open this up to a couple of questions. Uh, what comes to mind uh, to you as you're thinking about anything that we've discussed? RTS, covenant theology, current developments, you know, distinctions maybe even within the communities that RTS serves. Um, let's open the floor up to questions. I am in the hermeneutics course right now. It's my very first class in seminary that I've ever taken. Oh, Loving it. And Welcome. I'm learning a lot of overlap with what's being said um, in the conversation. I really love it. I would um, love to go back to a comment that you said, Dr. Duncan, about um, how is covenant theology a hermeneutic? What's mm. the overlap? How does mm. that play into the way we read mm. the Bible? Maybe that's an example. Yeah principles, something yeah. like that. Okay, great, great question. And here's one. When you're reading the New Testament, gospels or epistles, everywhere you read, it is the understanding of every writer that Jesus in his person and work fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. Mm -hmm. The very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, announces Jesus as the son of Abraham. Uh, the, the, the songs of Mary and of Zechariah in Luke 1 announce the coming of Jesus 
end of the world and his forerunner, John the Baptist, as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The Apostle Paul will say in Galatians 3, you cannot understand the cross unless you understand that Jesus was fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. So what you will find throughout the New Testament is the New Testament will view the Abrahamic covenant and their promises as determinative for understanding the person and work of Christ. So that would be one example of how covenant helps you as a hermeneutic. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read the New Testament writers well. Wow, they think the Abrahamic covenant is really important and they think that Jesus fulfilled it. And they think that you really can't in, in, understand what he came to do unless you understand the Abrahamic promises. So that would be one example of how covenant would function hermeneutically. I'd, I'd add to this, and actually it's, it's kind of saying the same thing, but in a slightly different way too, just from an Old Testament professor point of view. I felt like when I was raised as a Christian, I was raised in a, in a community that was influenced by covenant theology. But for them, what that meant was you showed how Jesus kind of was a symbol of the things you see in the Old Testament. He symbolically was fulfilling the kind of hard details of the Old Testament. And a, a more well honed covenant theology actually sees Jesus in, in the New Testament as organically continuing and finishing yes. the story of the Old Testament, right? Yeah. It's not just Christological themes and symbols. It's actually an organic story that finds Amen. its completion. It's part two. It's the Amen. sequel to the op to the first story. You know, it's you know, Jesus is actually it, he needs to be an Israelite. He's going he's gonna to be an Israelite. Right. He's going to fulfill these covenants in a very organic way, a promise and fulfillment way, not simply like metaphorical or, or kind of, uh, you know, symbolic, you know, as is often taught. Well said. And I, I, would, I would add to that um, and, and right back to your question again. There's a real sense in which the New Testament is just a hermeneutical manual for Christians on how to read the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one thing that the New Testament writers and all the early church fathers after them would have said is, the Old Testament is not a shadowy, sub-Christian, pre-Christian book. It's a Christian book. Mm -hmm. it's a bo and of course, where do they get that from? Jesus said, this book is about me. And if, if, you, if, you, if you don't understand that, you miss the book. That's the, the dialogue in John when he says, you, you, you search the scriptures because you think that you find in them salvation, but they speak of me. Yeah. And that's what Paul is saying when he says, you know, when you read the Torah with the veil of Moses over your eyes, you don't see that Christ is the end of the law. You, you miss the glory that's there. So early Christians saw the Old Testament as a Christian book and had a particular hermeneutical way of reading that book which they spell out in the Gospels and in the epistles of the New Testament. And the, and the early Christians that followed them uh, after the New Testament understood that. And uh, so it, 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 that emphasizes, as Scott said, the coherence of the whole, the continuity of redemption, redemptive history, the oneness of revelation. Uh, yeah, that all of those have hermeneutical ramifications. Oh, great. Another question? Yes, sir. Hi. So one thing I love about RTS and one reason my wife and I are here is because of the focus on rigorous training for a lifetime ministry to people. Um, and that focus constantly comes across. Love it. Um, what, so one question I have is being pretty convinced of covenant theology. Who are the voices we should be engaging who disagree with covenant wow. theology? The best so people so making That's the so best good. arguments so we can pastor our people well, not to dunk on them, but to listen. Well and learn. said. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, you know, a good example of doing that is Vern Poitras uh, in his little book, Understanding Dispensationalism. I used to uh, require that in, in covenant theology, but there's just on, only so much you can require uh, in in a course. And, uh, and, and, and Vern really goes out of his way to listen well to dispensational scholars and not just old classical dispensationalism, uh, but to the but to progressive forms of dis, dispensationalism fostered by people really good scholars like Daryl Bach at mm-hmm. uh, Dallas Seminary, um, and uh, and and folks like that. So the, on the dispensational side, Daryl Bach uh, would definitely be one of the responsible voices uh, that would identify with progressive dispensationalism that you would want to interact with mm-hmm. uh, from the standpoint of covenant theology. I've I've always thought that in the last 75 years, the best critics of covenant theology have been the, the Bartian theologians. Mm-hmm. Bart uh, Bart's gives a 10-page footnote in church. I'm kid, I kid you not. There's a 10-page footnote in Church Dogmatics where he interacts with 17th century um, covenant theology. And it's very clear that Bart understands it and yeah. he rejects it because he understands that if you adopt classic covenant theology, you end up with particular redemption, which to him was heresy. Yeah. Now, he would have denied believing in universalism, but there is a strong emphasis on the sort of the dialectical uh, juxtaposition of reprobation and election in Bart. We're all reprobate. We're all elect. And so any kind of particularism in atonement and redemption uh, again, gave Bart the heebie-jeebies, and uh, he he saw that that was unavoidable if you have a bicovenantal structure right. of of God's uh, plan in history, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And so, I've always tried to pay close attention to the Bardians, especially the Scottish Bardians, T. F. Torrance, J. B. Torrance, Alistair Heron, uh, theologians like that that were critiquing covenant theology from the standpoint of Bardianism. And uh, and I l- I've learned a lot from that. Uh, you know, they, the, the the Scottish Bardians are really helpful to remind you to be really careful about how you articulate conditionality mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. covenant theology, because there's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. And man, they come after conditionality with hammer and tong. So you 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 learn, boy, I better say this right, mm-hmm. or I walk right into the face of that criticism. So. I think the Scottish Bardians have taught me a lot about how to, not that I agree with them, but that I, how I need to articulate covenant theology uh, in order to address particular concerns. Donald McLeod helped me a lot in that area because he was interacting very extensively uh, with the Scottish Bardians, and I had the opportunity uh, to work with him. Historically, I also, there's been a lot of bad historiography on covenant theology, and um, and it has come from otherwise reputable sources. I mean, in terms um, of how it developed, correct. Yeah. So the it, the the man who has had the greatest impact on how we understand the historical development of covenant theology in America is was a historian at Harvard named Perry Miller, and uh, he he wrote a book called The New England Mine from Colony to Province hmm. in. Um, the late 1920s, early 1930s. And that has really set the stage for a lot 
of historiography about covenant theology. And, and, and his, his view was basically that the Puritans had invented covenant theology to mollify predestinarian Calvinism and to sneak works back into reformed theology. Now, I think all of us in this room, immediately the red, you know, the, the red lights <laughs> go off when we hear that kind of a description. But that ended up being enormously persuasive in the world of historiography. And, and one of the first things that George Marsden wrote professionally, you know, we know Marsden for his, you know, his sort of masterpiece biography of Jonathan Edwards and mm -hmm. his work on education and all of these other things. But he wrote a critique of Perry Miller mm -hmm. in the 1950s in an article in Church History, uh, the journal called Church History, which again, led to a generation later, many, many historians that have done a better job than Perry Miller on the development of covenant theology and history. So those are that, that those would be some of the examples of people that I try and listen to their criticisms or their misunderstandings so that I do a better job of presenting covenant theology. That's great. I think we have time for one more question. Yes, sir. So I would be curious how you would respond to, do you know a little bit about progressive covenantalism? So Gentry and Weldon from Southern probably produced the biggest volume on it but just kind of offering a third way between dispensationalism and covenant theology, and they come to different conclusions, and so I'd just be curious how you'd respond to what they're arguing. That's great. Um, I, I think, and, and, and by the way, um, our authors of the RTS Covenant Theology volume deliberately reached out to Steve Wellam and, um, and, and Pete Gentry to, to get feedback on... Uh, I know Scott Swain, for instance, reached out to make sure that he was characterizing things properly. And, um, and also Dick Belcher in his book, um, something, what is it called? The Fulfillment of the Promises of God or something like that. It's his sort of overview introduction to covenant theology. He tries to give a little bit of, of interaction with progressive covenantalism as well. Um, I, I would say two things about progressive covenantalism. Number one, I would personally not want to choose dispensationalism as my conversation partner in articulating biblical theology. Now, it's, you know, this, this sounds harsh. I have, I have many progressive dispensational friends and colleagues with whom I happily work, but I am absolutely unconvinced of the historicity or the or the theological lineage of dispensationalism it is just a it is an it's it's an eccentric development uh in theology and i wouldn't want to pick it it'd be like me doing writing a biblical theology and my conversation partner was uh jehovah's witness teaching <laughs> Entirely no, that, eccentric. That, that sounded harsh. Um, <laughs> entirely eccentric in the development of historic Christianity. It's a 19th century development, and and look now. Let me now, now let me give some credit. It's not that the fundamental question of dispensationalism about the status of Israel, the restoration, and the land is alien to any other part of Christian history. That, that was talked about at the Reformation. That has been talked about uh, in the 17th century. It was talked about in the 18th century. They are not the only ones to ask those hard questions about Old Testament prophetic fulfillment of Israel land and, and restoration passages. But they're the only ones that have built a hermeneutic around it. 
And so I wouldn't want to pick that as my conversation partner. So that'd be my first criticism of Steve and Pete. I wouldn't have picked dispensation. Now, there's a reason why they did, because they're teaching in the context of the Southern Baptist world. And the Southern Baptist world is permeated, at certainly at the popular level, by dispensationalism and certainly dispensational eschatology. So I'm, I'm sympathetic with that. That wouldn't be what I would pick. On the other hand, the, 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 you know, the, their Scylla their, their and Charybdis is dispensationalism on the one side and us on the other, okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, on the other hand, they're, they're trying to articulate covenant as a theological category for, um, for pull, you know, pulling together your overall biblical theology without falling into the trap of paedo-baptism, right? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's in the end, you know, and they know that the continuity of the Abrahamic covenant is the whole ball game. You give me the continuity on the on the Abrahamic covenant, I win. <laughs> that's I mean it's just that's it. And so they've got to build in what I find to be artificial discontinuity in the progressive covenantal system uh, because they want to avoid a continuity that would lead to the sin of infant baptism. Uh, and uh, so that, that would be my, you know, my quick rejoinder to my friends. Uh, they can call me up after this and uh, cajole, critique, remonstrate, uh, et cetera. <laughs> but that, that would be my quick response to yeah, that I project. Think Stephen Wellham, in his review of the covenant theology, called, called our covenant theology the RTS. The work. best presentation yeah. available. The it's best, very, it's very generous of very, Steve to say that. Yeah, yeah. right. And, yeah. And, I, and I think that would still be the difference. And it comes down to atomizing, right. having an atomizing versus a continue, right. you know, a, a continuity impulse. And yeah, I think you start dividing up Abraham. And now you're t- touching on one of my heebie-jeebies, you know. So you start dividing up Abraham, and I think you're just you're just losing so much of that narrative, right? Um, and it just it lends itself to a not very helpful read. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you for this conversation. Uh, this has been phenomenal having you. Thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you, Scott, and with all your friends. So everybody here at the Open House, thanks for joining us. It's been great having you. We look forward to having more of these in the future. Everybody listening at home, look forward to uh, being with you again. Until then, take care.